On today's episode, I talk with Dr. Gary Griggs. Dr. Griggs is Distinguished Professor of Earth Sciences at UC Santa Cruz. His research focuses on the coastal zone and ranges from coastal evolution and development through shoreline processes, coastal hazards and coastal engineering and sea level rise. His recent research projects have focused on documenting and understanding coastal erosion processes, including the temporal and spatial variations and rates of retreat, evaluating the effectiveness of coastal protection structures and the impacts of coastal engineering projects like seawalls, jetties, and breakwaters on coastal processes. A foremost figure in research and policy on California's coastal erosion, on this episode, Dr. Griggs and I talk all things California coastal erosion. What's exacerbated the current coastal erosion crisis? What is being done to address it? And what has worked and what has failed? And where do we go from here? Hi, Gary. So you are a professor of earth sciences at UC Santa Cruz. So I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about what earth sciences is, what you do. Uh, Yeah. Well, I think earth science in recent years has sort of evolved as a department name where it used to be geology. And I think people just envisioned people out beating on rocks. And at UC Santa Barbara, where I was an undergraduate, it was geological sciences. And then at Santa Cruz, it's evolved to earth and planetary sciences because we now have planetary people. Um, So my own background includes geological sciences, oceanography, and civil engineering. And those all came together in the coastal zone for me. So we've got, um, well, in this background behind me, we can see we have geological stuff. We have rocks, which make up much of the California coast. <laughs> this is a pretty calm day in Santa Cruz, but we've got waves beating on the shoreline. And then there's a big pile of rocks back here, which is the engineering part where we've used seawalls and rock revetments to try to protect the coastline. So I kind of have this long standing love affair with the coast, I guess. Uh, And it goes back to being a kid and, you know, going to the beach, camping along the coast that I kind of came to the understanding that I really needed to work in the natural environment in contrast to people saying, oh, I'm going to be a musician or I'm going to be an artist. I mean, this is where my interest really came from. And I went to UC Santa Barbara as an undergraduate I mean, in contrast to, say, Davis, well, you have Bodega, but Davis is is a bit away from it. The (laughs) coast, Santa Cruz is closer, um, but Santa Barbara was lovely. You know, I mean, the campus is right on the coast. Uh, I spent a lot of time on the beach. I spent a lot of time surfing. And so that was sort of my my grounding, I guess. And even though as an undergraduate, you take a lot of other classes, physics, chemistry, calculus, Um, The class that really did it for me was a class in marine geology or sort of that part of the geological world that is either on the coast or underwater. And then I think like many people, we have all these um, serendipitous paths we take depending on who we ran into. And uh, as I tried to tell my own students, even though you might look at a professor and say, oh, gosh, he must have known what he wanted to do his whole life. I changed my major five times. I was like most of us, 18, 19, kind of young and naive. And every time I found a new class I liked, I I changed my major, but I ended up back in in, uh, geological sciences. And then I sort of by accident saw this poster of graduate school in oceanography. I knew that's what I wanted to do. And it turns out another long story that not probably worth getting into, but I... (laughs) I looked at all the schools that I knew had graduate programs in marine geology, oceanography, and there was Scripps in La Jolla, there was Woods Hole, there was Lamont, there was University of Washington, and then a new school at Oregon State University, a new oceanography program. And at the point I graduated, I was pretty broke. (laughs) I wasn't in debt, but I didn't have any extra money, and I looked at the application fees and I know now 
even for undergraduate school, a lot of students will apply to six schools or eight schools to cover their bases. And I think if it's law or medical school, there might be 10. <clears throat> and each of those schools were $25 or 30. It was, it was nothing. I think Oregon State was 10. Mm. <laughs> $10 to apply. So I said, well, this is the one I'm picking. <laughs> it was also close. It was closer. I didn't have to go clear across the country. And I'd spent a couple of years in Oregon as a, as a kid living on a ranch. And I, Oregon was familiar and comfortable. So I applied. And it turns out it was a, a great decision. Um, it was a great new program combined with my sort of love of the ocean and the beach. Um, and they offered me a, a research assistantship at the massive sum of $180 a month. <laughs> Sort of what you might pay now for a month of, you know, gourmet coffee or something. <laughs> um, and it turned out to be a great program. A lot of young faculty. I, I didn't work on beaches directly. I worked on the deep sea. Um, we had a ship and we were going offshore. But anyway, that kindled my interest. Um, I ended up, I don't know, somewhat amazingly finished my P. I skipped a master's, one of the few people to do that. They didn't allow that automatically then like they do now. Today, that's sort of more common for people who know what they want to do. And I finished along with orals and qualifying exams and a minor in civil engineering and a minor in geology and a major in ocean. I finished in three years, wow. um, which is something I try to push my graduate students into. Nobody's made it. <laughs> that. That's a tough one. Yeah. We also had to learn two foreign languages, which oh. was the old doctor of philosophy. Yes. Anyway. <laughs> um, that worked in uh, a professor at Santa Barbara who was sort of a mentor had been invited to come to Santa Cruz to start a new program. Um, the campus had just opened two years before. <laughs> so I was fortunate enough to get invited to come to UC Santa Cruz as a young assistant professor um, 53 years ago now. So being right on the coast, being surrounded by the kind of things behind me, um, I mean, I still taught other classes, marine geology, marine sedimentation. But as time went on, I got into geologic hazards, mm -hmm. environmental issues, wrote a couple of textbooks on that. But then I started focusing on the coast. Mm -hmm. And that's where I think my present interest has been focused mm -hmm. um, for the last probably 40 years. So um, I guess I would say coastal processes, coastal hazards is sort of where my work has been focused. And as time has gone on, those fields have become, I think, even more important. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, many scientists conduct basic research. They, mm -hmm. what does the ribosome do? You know, what mineral exists inside the earth with no real necessarily practical value in mind, but it just interests them. They're sort of probing the frontiers of science. And for me, I've always had an interest in sort of real world problems and the application of those. So um, civil engineering added to that uh, along with geology and oceanography. So, you know, what I've continued to do is sort of look at the problems we face and how could what I know and what I do um, help us understand that better. So one of those has clearly been um, coastal erosion. Yeah. And it ties into well, not only the natural processes and the stability, and it turns out the coast behind me here in this image is um, more or less stable, but mm -hmm. there's places that are weaker than others. For example, a place that many people may know on Santa Cruz is Natural Bridges State Beach. Mm -hmm. It had these original three natural arches. Um, over time, the first one collapsed, <laughs> the yeah. second one collapsed, and now it's Natural Bridge. There's a reason for that. And then other places within a mile, there might be rocks that haven't changed in 100 years. So mm -hmm. looking at, at what causes coastal erosion, mm -hmm. what are the variables? Um, and again, it's a combination of sort of geology and oceanography, where the materials most resistant, mm -hmm. what are the forces acting on them? And those are things that are, you know, manageable. It's not like trying to solve a complicated math problem. Um, although people develop mathematical models for that, mm -hmm. I'm not a real 
advocate of models. I, I think there's some that might be useful, but it's for me, it's like, what's the real world show? What can we observe? What can we see? And yeah. go ahead. Yeah, I think one of the amazing things about doing this podcast is seeing how many people take that kind of circuitous path that just kind of started with, you know, either I grew up near the ocean or I love the ocean or I love going to the coast. And then I tried, you know, this field or this field and then, you know, realized that this was something I could study in this way. And another thing that you were talking about that it seems like a lot of people have in common is wanting that real world application or even working as practitioners before kind of coming to the more, you know, academic field sciences and things like that. So yeah, it is kind of amazing that that kind of early spark for the coast right. has led to this, you know, lifelong passion and study <laughs> for this thing. And a big part of the coast is also beaches. And I spend a lot yeah. of time with beaches and where does our sand come from and how yeah. fast does it move? And how have we as humans impacted that by building dams on rivers and building mm -hmm. breakwaters and jetties? <clears throat> but if someone would have told me 60 years ago, I could spend my life studying coasts and beaches, <laughs> I would have said, that sounds really good. Yeah. <laughs> and I've been, I've been fortunate enough with sabbaticals and travel to, you know, see a lot of foreign countries and look at a lot of different places. A couple of years ago, um, I was starting on this book called Coasts in Crisis. Mm -hmm. So it's a mixture of why people came to the coasts, what natural hazards affect our existence here, mm -hmm. whether it's waves and tsunamis and hurricanes and so forth. And then what are the ways in which humans have affected the coast? And that's everything from oil drilling and pollution and coral reefs. So in, in order to sort of get a broader perspective, because I know California coast pretty well and have mm -hmm. written books about that, we decided to take a two month trip. So we spent a month traveling, driving around the coast of Spain and Portugal, mm -hmm. and a month around the coast of England and Scotland. I think we drove I don't know, almost 10,000 miles. <laughs> um, and uh, it was amazing first that we could do that. And it, and it came into this book. Um, and I do a course with that book this quarter, actually, tomorrow morning at 920. Um, but that it's always exciting. It's always different. There's always a new coast ahead of you. There, it, there's not, I mean, just California is so incredibly diverse. And we have places like Los Angeles and San Diego, which are so totally urbanized. Um, there's still a coast, but it's been, for example, the coast of Southern California, when you see these rocks behind me here, 38% uh, of it has been armored with something, wow. rocks or seawalls. Um, San Diego County, Orange County, Los Angeles, and Ventura, 38% has been completely armored. And then you get up north, north of Santa Barbara, it's sort of still open and vacant. The Big Sur Coast is like what it was, you know, thousands of years ago. And then Monterey Bay has been, you know, impacted and the, the San Francisco Bay. But then when you go from there north, almost to the Oregon border, it's still pretty undeveloped. I mean, there's Sea Ranch and there's a few places, but that you have this opportunity to see sort of the real unblemished coast in a sense. And then what we've unto it. So the other part that's interesting to me is um, how we've responded to coastal erosion, you know, how we've dealt with it. And that figure of 38% being armored is sort of, that's what we did in the past. And essentially, um, the coast is moving back, as I like to say, you know, sea levels rising and we're in the way. Um, and that's related to the bigger picture of climate change and sea level rise. But um, because we are such a coastally dependent state and most of our people live in coastal counties and most of the jobs are in coastal counties and most people would rather live closer to the coast than further away from it, there's just been this huge <clears throat> magnetic attraction, you know, for almost a century, I would say, from the early part of the last century. And one of the interesting things is um, <clears throat> we now understand sort of the climate of the Pacific Ocean, California is um, sort of connected to these um, 
what we call Pacific decadal oscillations, these periods that last 10 or 20 or 30 years when the climate is dominated by El Nino type events, more storms, more erosion, bigger waves, more rainfall, more flooding. And those are interspersed with um, calmer periods. Not so many big El Ninos, not so much rainfall, not so much coastal erosion. And it turns out from about the 19, mid 1940s, sort of when World War II ended, to 1978 was a period of really calm weather. Wow. And that's when California's coast was developed, and that's when the population boom went up. Wow, that's so interesting. I didn't know that. So at the time when things looked really great, we built houses on cliffs and beaches and dunes, not unlike sort of allocating all the Colorado River water during a really Mm -hmm. wet period or California's water. And now as we go into another year of drought, which everybody is painfully aware of, you realize, wow, we over allocated because climate changes over time, uh, independent of people. So that awareness that people subdivided and built under calm times. And then in 78, we jumped into a big El Nino in 78 and 82, 83 and 87, 89 or 98, 99. So people said, whoa, what's happening? So then we started building more walls and more rock revetments and <clears throat> people, some of this combination of people wanting to be on the coast even more, but being more expensive to live there because you've got to deal with these erosion problems. So my interest has kind of moved towards sea level rise, coastal erosion, what are our alternatives, and how do we deal with this in the future where all indications are that climate's going to continue to change, sea level's going to continue to rise, because as the climate warms, seawater gets warmer and warmer water expands, and ice melts. And all ice melts at 32 degrees Fahrenheit. It doesn't matter if you're Republican or a Democrat. So (laughs) that's going to go on. I think most people that study this say, you know, there's so much greenhouse gas in the atmosphere. This is going to likely go on for centuries. Mm -hmm. In some ways, no matter what we do, we can slow it down. And we're definitely moving in the right direction with this administration with the biggest offshore wind farm in the U.S. was just approved yesterday. Oh, wow. So Where was of, that approved? Yeah. Off Massachusetts. Um, that is, I sorry, that's so interesting to me because I grew up in Massachusetts. And uh, I remember my, what, my entire first 18 years, them trying to approve offshore wind power and just getting this constant pushback because of what it would look like off the beaches. So that's just... Yeah. Yeah. So that was a, that was the Cape Wind project, and yeah. it took ten years, and it was along a well, I don't know, five miles offshore, but basically Nantucket and Martha's Vineyard didn't want to see didn't it. Want it, yeah. And so they came up with every possible reason you could think of not to build it. And finally, the company, even though they did all the environmental work and they got the they got through that, they finally just said, you know, we got to borrow money on this, and it's it's going to go down. So um, a couple of years later, Rhode Island. Mm-hmm. Um, put in the first five wind, wind turbines um, called Block Island. It's going to support yeah. Block Island. But they had already sort of pre-zoned the coast for, well, this is for fishing, this is for shellfish, this is for energy. And it sailed through, and now there's two off of New Jersey. So we have seven. Wow. Europe has like 5,000. Wow. So under the last administration, I'm just going to say the last administration rather yeah. than using any names, they basically just slowed everything down. We're going to do coal mining. We're going to do offshore oil. So this has been turned around, and there's an agency, BOEM, Bureau of Offshore Energy Management, that sort of now deals with all this. They've just got going in the right direction, and yesterday they approved this. It's called um, Wind Farm. Mm-hmm. It's about 15 miles southeast of um, Cape Cod, so it's not far offshore. But I think in the intervening years, all of a sudden, people are seeing the writing on the wall that we got to start cutting down our use of fossil fuels, going to renewables, and a bunch of European companies are interested. Um, so a lot of progress. There's been a couple of great press releases about this. I think they're going to put in 32 turbines, and it's going to, I think, supply power for something like 400,000 homes. <clears throat> but there's now 
14 other permits pending off the Carolinas and Virginia, and then California's even looking at three areas, um, one off of Morro Bay, one off of um, Diablo Canyon, and one off Humboldt. Hmm. Um, it's a little more complicated. I think our wave energy is higher, but you know, groups are working together. People are interested in bidding on those. So anyway, yeah, that's good. <laughs> it is good. And one of the most amazing things about your book, which I read last week, uh, Global Coast and Crisis, is I feel like you have this ability to distill these long time spans into really mm. manageable and understandable chapters and sections. And you're kind of reaching out from this long geologic history into maybe a much shorter time span that someone you know would experience themselves living in an area and have this wonderful leap forward section at the end of each chapter of like, where do we go from here? Right. Yeah. So I guess one of my questions is where do we go from here? You're talking about <laughs> these amazing windmill projects, something that's been exciting for people working in environmental humanities, environmental sciences is all these opportunities to bring groups together that it feels like people are very excited about now. So yeah, where do we go from here with coastal erosion? <laughs> So there's, there's two, I mean, two different approaches that the climate people talk about. There's mitigation, doing everything we can to cut back, and windmills are a part of that, or wind turbines. Mm -hmm. And then there's adaptation. So knowing erosion and sea level rise aren't going to stop tomorrow, um, first I would say um, we've got four good years ahead of us. Hopefully we have many more good years ahead of us where we've got uh, got to a place where science matters. We don't have to argue about science. It's true whether you believe it or not. Um, and California is, I think, unique in other ways in that we are sort of a leader in our energy conservation, automobile mileage, wind farms, solar farms. We're just, let's face it, we're a really progressive state. I mean, we have our conservative areas and we have, we still fight over environmental issues, um, but I think we're going in the right direction. So I, I give a talk a lot called climate change, sea level rise in the California coast. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of where it ends. Where do we go from here? And there's essentially, well, there's only a handful of choices. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it partly depends on whether you're thinking short-term or long-term, mm -hmm. but, um, one is denial, or if you own a piece of coastal property, sell it. Um, yeah. That's really short term. And then there's sort of what we've done for almost a century, these rocks in the background, um, armor. And again, we've armored almost 40% of Southern California. Statewide, it's about 14%, but that's because we have these long stretches like Big Sur where there's nothing. But um, we're now at a point where the California Coastal Commission has come, which has to approve everything on the coast. They have come to um, sort of a policy that was modified over the years. In the original Coastal Act, it says you can protect an existing structure if it's threatened. You can apply for a seawall and if all these other conditions are met. Mm -hmm. And existing structure was interpreted by lawyers as well, that was written in 1976. I have an existing structure built in 2018. I want to protect it. And mm -hmm. for many years, the staff and the commission sort of um, allowed that. And now they decided, no, what we meant was what was written in 1976. Was it, was it in existence then? So now, unless you have a house that was, bitten, was built before the Coastal Act, finally went into existence in January 1977, uh, you're not going to get a permit or you're repairing an old seawall. So the era of building armor is more or less over. Mm -hmm. So that option, even though there's many communities saying we're going to build more armor, I don't think so. Mm -hmm. Lawyers may argue for that for, for a long time. The other option short term is, is nourishing beaches. And that's been really big on the East Coast. They have spent $5 billion on sand. They just keep bringing it into yeah. the same places over and over again. It's very expensive. The federal government pays for a lot of it. 
we've just done a couple of projects in San Diego, mm -hmm. uh, one in 2001, one in 2012. They lasted one to two years, and we spent um, $47 million. Wow. And it's, they're just, there are ways we can prolong that by putting in retention structures like groins, and that may happen, but it's not a long-term solution. Mm -hmm. So those are short-term, sort of the past. So if we look into the future, um, I did an op-ed in the LA Times last weekend, mm -hmm. and sort of the conclusion was, or the headline was, in the long run, there's no way we can hold back the Pacific Ocean. Mm -hmm. So I think people are beginning to realize that, but they can't accept the consequences. So the Coastal Commission from each city and county had to prepare years ago, their local coastal program that says how they're gonna deal with their section of coast. So if it's Marin County, Sonoma County, Bodega Bay, Carmel, Monterey, San Diego, they all have one of these coastal programs that talk about wetlands protection and public access and all these things. Um, what the Coastal Commission asked maybe two years ago was, we want you to now include the approach for dealing with sea level that your community is going to take or consider. And one of the issues they wanted them to come to grips with, or one of the approaches was two words that nobody wants to hear, <laughs> managed retreat. And it's probably unfortunate that those words came out and have now been kind of ingrained in coastal residents' mind. There's, there's some other words that, you know, community-led relocation. Mm. <laughs> <coughs> stepping back gracefully, <laughs> but most coastal homeowners just don't want to have anything to do with that. Yeah. So when the Coastal Commission asked for these new local coastal programs, three communities dug in their heels, mm. said, no, we're not going to do it. One was Pacifica that's already lost apartments to the oh, shore. Yeah. It's kind of ironic because they've got some serious problems there. Um, Del Mar, which is down in northern San Diego County, where yeah. a lot of really expensive houses on the sand. Mm -hmm. And then there's the railroad track that's on the bluffs that's being undercut. They've got to mm -hmm. do something. And then um, Imperial Beach, which is the southernmost city just north of the Mexican border. They said, no, we're not going to. So now there's this <laughs> little bit of an impasse. What's going to happen next? But what I'm saying is we know sea level's rising. We know it's going to continue to rise. We know the rate is accelerating. So at some point, and it depends on, are you on the edge of an eroding bluff? Are you on the beach like Del Mar where you're going to get flooded? Mm -hmm. um, San Francisco Bay is another good example because it's already flooded at very high tides is, <clears throat> what are your most vulnerable areas? What, at what point would you say, we've reached a threshold, we could call it a tipping point, mm -hmm. when we can no longer maintain that. Is it, a, is it a highway that gets flooded once a week that's no longer passable? Is it a state campground or park where the bathroom's underwater, or the, you know, the parking place is underwater? Or is it your house? Or is it a restaurant where you, know, you get flooded, I don't know, once a month, twice a month, you say, okay, this is enough. We're not gonna, we can't get insurance anymore. We're gonna relocate. And it, Probably is not going to be tomorrow, although some places are flooded regularly. It may be 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. And then how do we move forward from there? What is our approach? There's a bill now that just got introduced in the state Senate, Senate Bill 83, and it's trying to develop a revolving fund to begin to buy out coastal homeowners that are most threatened. Wow. And there's a couple other approaches that you could combine with that. I mean, they have to show they're threatened as you could actually have the state buy those and then they can rent them back as long as it's livable. But that's a step forward. The problem is that most um, California coastal property is very, very expensive. Yeah. You can't yeah, buy I, a lot of houses. A, a question I had for you, which is, you know, you're talking about these areas and the local it seems like local, you know, commissions deciding what to do and that kind of interaction of the state and what the state wants to do in the local interaction. But these are very wealthy homeowner right. areas. Yeah. So 
there was a comparison made by a friend, a colleague, Charles Lester, who used to be the director of the Coastal Commission. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and it was, um, I guess, after major disasters like Hurricane Katrina or Hurricane Sandy, Superstorm Sandy, where hundreds of houses were destroyed. So FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, <clears throat> actually came in with funding to try to buy out some of those homeowners. And at the houses in places, these are not California neighborhoods, at two or three hundred thousand dollars, you know, for 10 million, you can buy out 30 homes. Well, in California, for 10 million, you can buy out half a home. Yeah. So, so the, the money involved is, is astronomical. Um, but relocating is also expensive. You may know about this um, Gleason Beach. Um, you know, they're moving, you know, most of the houses are gone. They're going to remove the rest of them and then move the highway in. They got to build a bridge across the creek there, and then they're going to go inland and, and miss that whole area. But that took 10 years of negotiating between the Coastal Commission and Caltrans. And I think it's going to cost $33 million. And that's easy. There's not a bunch of wealthy homes. So I think it tells us <clears throat> down the road, there's going to be some um, really big challenge. And that's not even to include a place like San Francisco or Miami <clears throat> or New York. So, or the, or the global cities of Hong Kong and Singapore and Shanghai. So I have said, this is the greatest challenge human civilization has ever had to face. You know, we will get through COVID. We're kind of, coming down, you know, we'll begin to solve the homeless problem at some point, but you don't just solve sea level by throwing a couple of dollars at it. So this is not a trivial issue by any stretch. So those are some of the things I see coming, but I wish I had the, um, you know, the silver bullet of, um, part of it I think is public education. Um, part of it is gonna be the community involvement of those people. So they are not just told we're buying your house, you're out of here, or we're taking your house, you're out of here. But here's the science. Here's what we know. Here's the uncertainties. We don't know exactly where sea level will be in 2030 or 2050, but it's coming. And uh, we have to make some decisions about what we're going to do. And it may be your children. It may be um, if the insurance companies see the risks is too high, and this is happening on the East Coast, they won't insure you any longer. And then you can't get a mortgage because unless your house is insured, they're not going to loan you money on it. So it may be solved by economic um, issues, sort of like these fire prone areas now in California. I mean, it's, it's tragic, but it's the reality. If we have this year of drought and <clears throat> drier and more fires, I mean, how many times can these insurance companies afford to keep reinsuring houses in, in fire prone areas? And I think the coastal zone is very similar, not yet in California, but certainly in the East Coast. Yeah, I saw recently that it seems like people are moving to closer states to California and that there's this concern that people are moving out of California because of the wildfires. So I do think it's interesting how that interaction of both, you know, increased wildfires and also this imminent threat to coastal erosion will, will play into the future of the state. And I guess a question I have is, do you feel like with the conversations you've had that this is something that's in people's minds or is it still something that you feel like you have to, you know, have that, that hard statement of this is going to be one of the worst things that we see in the future and we have to plan for it. Really good question. And I think because the people I interact with often, which are graduate students and colleagues yeah. is like, this is what we work on. But then, um, and I write, I write this biweekly newspaper column on coastal stuff and books that I think the average person this is sort of still a vague issue. Um, and I think the economy, immigration, homelessness, jobs, COVID are up here someplace and climate change is down maybe number seven. But then right after a fire, if you lived in one of those cities, you say, well, droughts and fires are, are really 
pretty devastating. We don't want to go through that again. So I think it, <clears throat> we have this, what I call a short disaster memory. Mm-hmm. We're very um, resilient, although I hesitate to use that word that, you know, we come back, but I think some cases that may not be the best answer. You know, you go back into a fire prone area and um, we know some people up in the Napa area that have been had their house burned down twice. Yeah. This time they said, no, we're not going back. I think it's people that are living in hurricane prone areas that FEMA has reinsured them again and again, you know, multiple pay. And finally, FEMA, which has bailed out a number of times, they get so far into debt, they're finally starting to raise the premiums to reflect actual risks. Mm-hmm. So I think <coughs> those people that are been caught in those disasters are probably more aware. But I don't know if you went to the average person in Davis, they'd probably say, uh maybe yeah. drought maybe drought water availability yeah flood the rice paddies or whatever um but uh, you know it's it's just a different thing i think most of us have lived our whole lives without any real major disasters you know we haven't gone through a real disaster except for a fire here and a flood there but now we see if you get a drought i mean that's what climate models predict um warmer temperatures hotter days more frequent droughts more fires Mm-hmm. Um, and just looking at our record and our history now, you'd say, yeah, that sounds like it's right. Um, yeah. One of the interesting things for me coming out to California, moving to California, I hadn't lived, you know, I hadn't even visited California before I moved here. So the first fire season caught me totally off guard. I'd only been through blizzards and things like that being our, you know, big, climate issues or disasters. And I felt very unprepared because unless you're talking to someone who's lived there for 20 years, you don't know to keep masks in stock or all these little things that you need until the actual disaster is happening and then you're caught off guard. So I do wonder that, you know, that question of like you said, if we don't do this now, we're going to be kind of scrambling to address it while the crisis is happening. And that doesn't seem super sustainable. So, yeah. That's been sort of our past approach. Yeah. Um, And we are probably, well, I don't think anybody was prepared for these fires that swept through 8,000 homes and the way that firestorm happened. You know, so many people could even get their family photograph albums. It was like, Mm -hmm. here's the fire coming. You got 20 seconds to grab your kids and your cat. Um, But we should be now by now much better prepared. Um, But I think again, we we tend to put that last disaster in the rearview mirror and say, oh, things look good. We're getting through COVID. My kids are in college. Are they gonna be in college? They've been at home and I'm getting tired of that. But anyway, (laughs) that this reality of in everybody's lifetime, they're going to maybe have experienced one or two things like this and say, yeah, I remember two years ago we had this. So mm-hmm. let's not buy a house here. Um, you know, let's, I don't know where you go. I mean, there's, there's issues everywhere, but yeah. um, if it's not fire or water or flood or COSPO, um, I mean, we're still this incredible paradise, right? Yeah. You know, I'm sure once you got here from Massachusetts, oh, I like it here. I can I can manage to stay here. <laughs> yeah. It was honestly unlike anything I'd ever seen before. Just those rolling hills directly into cliffs and then ocean is just stunning. Yeah. yeah. It's unlike anything. And I, I guess what I'm also wondering is, you know, we have a very cliffy state. So and so the sandy beaches are, you know, well visited. So how much the actual topography or the geography of the area affects how you deal with that erosion? Like you said, there are huge cliffs in the north and in the southern part of the state, it's a lot of sandy beaches and you're going to approach it differently. Right. Yeah. And there's two real issues. One is the low-lying sandy beach <coughs> um, areas, which make up about I don't know, maybe 25% of the coast. Most Southern California, Monterey Bay is like that. <coughs> um, there it's going to be short-term flooding and then complete inundation. The cliffs, it's going to be erosion and retreat. And so um, 
But one of the issues with particularly Southern California beaches, because they are visited by tens of millions of people, but now we've armored the backs of so many of those. As sea level rises, what we're going to do is gradually flood those beaches because in a natural environment, if we had no California development, sea level would rise and the shoreline would just move inland. Mm. But now that we've armored it, sea level is still rising. What it's going to gradually do is flood those beaches and destroy them. Um, the U.S. Geological Survey has done some work in Southern California, showed maybe a third to two-thirds of all of Southern California beaches will be gone by 2075. And so um, it, it's essentially trying to protect the houses and the restaurants and the infrastructure behind the beach at the expense of the public beach. So there's winners and losers. Um, mm -hmm. and, and those are just, you know, unfortunately, we can't just stop the climate, turn it off tomorrow. We're running this giant chemistry experiment and it's a it's a big ocean and a big atmosphere. You can't just um, say, okay, well, we didn't we didn't do this right. We've got to turn it, the, the, the temperature back. It's going to take a long time. Yeah. And are we seeing construction projects, things like that, continuing that we know heightened coastal erosion, but keep happening? Like marinas are continuing to be built or... Are you seeing kind of any walls with that of these coastal construction projects still happening without even acknowledging that erosion is happening? I would say not in California. Okay. <laughs> Every time you move a piece of rock, the Coastal Commission is watching you okay. and people are getting fined for doing stuff illegally that mm -hmm. wasn't approved. <clears throat> and I work with a lot. I do a lot of consulting, which is interesting because it's real people and real problems. I, I'm not an advocate, but I can at least tell them, yeah, it's eroding this fast or your seawall's not safe. Um, three clients in particular here that have walls that were built 30 or 40 years ago, but they're now failing. And they're trying to make the case that by providing some public benefit, like a walkway along the wall, that's what the Coastal Commission is, is keen on is public benefit. They will tell you, we're, we don't care about houses. That's not what our job is. Um, but I mean, we are people that live here. So, um, but things are not getting built. I would say we're never going to build another marina in California. We're never going to fill another wetland. I don't think we're going to build very many more seawalls. Different on the East Coast. Miami is still building these 30-story high-rise condominium projects. And they are built on limestone so even if you build a wall, the water is going to come in under it and flood it. And they're still fantasizing about being the most, they're going to become the most resilient coastal city. They're going to be the first one to go underwater. Yeah. Florida is very, very low. <clears throat> so I don't see that happening here. And, and the Coastal Commission has done a lot of, you know, really good things. They sometimes get into the weeds a bit on projects. Um, but I think over overall in the long run, they're trying to look out for the public. So that's a good thing. Yeah, that is a good thing. And so for people who are living in these coastal areas, like what are things that people can do talking to your town council or anything like that, or just learning more and trying to get involved wherever you can? Yeah, I think learning more so you get at least the reality of what's happening rather than the denial. Yeah. <clears throat> and I've talked to homeowners groups and a couple of groups that are trying to um, begin to see what the real problems are by listening to the science first. And even though they may not want to hear it, um, you can only stick your head in the sand so long and you look around and say, wow, if sea level keeps rising, we're in trouble. So I think Part of his education, I think for most people living on the beach now, I mean, there's some areas that are in trouble. Gleason Beach is going to be gone. I mean, those never should have been built there. There's a place in Malibu, Broad Beach, where a lot of the Hollywood people live that are in a precarious place right now. They're on the sand. They've got rocks protecting them, but the Coastal Commission saw those as temporary. So they're trying to find a permanent solution. There are places much more vulnerable. The cliffs in Pacifica. Um, so I think everybody needs to, well, before you buy an ocean for a house, you need to be um, aware of what you're buying into. But as I've learned recently, um, there's a lot of very wealthy people who are ready to plunk down millions of dollars for maybe 10 years of view. Um, so I don't know whether they've ever gotten the complete picture of um, 
what the risks are. But I guess if you have a billion dollars, a couple million isn't that big of a deal. But ultimately, whether it's one year or five years or 10 years, we're going to see, you know, these this conflict coming together between the ocean coming this way and these houses and condominiums and, you know, mobile home parks right at the edge um, getting that impact. So we're at a very interesting time, though. It's kind of exciting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I know we had talked at one point about that managed retreat and homes that you had seen in on the coast of England who are doing this kind of managed retreat. And I was wondering if you could sort of talk about that for a minute. What is what is a realistic solution <laughs> that we can do at this time? Yeah. Um, well, the spot in England on the Yorkshire coast I was fascinated with because I found this book that said Lost Towns of the Yorkshire Coast, written mm -hmm. in 1906. And that was someplace when my wife and I took this trip, said, I want to see what it looks like. And what we discovered are these, what they call caravan parks, mobile home parks, where they built these sprawling, maybe two or 300 concrete pads with electricity and water and sewer. People pay by the month. Some people actually live there. Some people just come, they have their caravan there for vacations. But it's 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 not $50 million houses, not even million dollar houses there. 20,000, 30,000, $60,000 homes. The cliffs are retreating at six feet per year. So when the cliff gets close enough, you don't feel comfortable. You bring in a truck and you haul your trailer to the back of the line and somebody else that's behind you gets the ocean front for a while. Mm -hmm. I thought that was genius. Um, and I think we counted 20 of these mobile home parks. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we have a few of those in California, but um, actually in Pacifica, not far from where those apartments went into the water, um, back in the 83 El Nino, the cliffs are really high, maybe 70, 80, 90 feet, but they're dirt. They're unconsolidated dirt. It's not rock. And they started... The El Nino events, the storm waves, the tides moved the sand off, started attacking the bluffs, and they ended up putting the wheels back on those mobile homes and moving them inland. So we actually did that. But I think for most of California, particularly those areas, you know, the Carmels of the world, the La Jolla's of the world, the Malibu's, they're not going to ever move their homes out and put in mobile homes. But we can move structures. I actually moved a house once, <laughs> but I think it's one thing for sort of a, even a two-story wood frame dwelling, but you look at some of these sprawling coastal mansions, there's a limit to what we can pick up and move. So mm -hmm. relocation or stepping back is going to be a much more complicated process. And then think about a, a high rise in Miami that's 50 stories high. You just don't move that. So do you, steal off the first floor where all but that's where all the utilities usually are mm -hmm. <clears throat> and nobody's really begun to deal with it that except the army corps of engineers which is proposing a bunch of walls around cities mm. charleston new york miami i mean billion dollar walls which is what new orleans does new orleans below yeah. sea level and then they failed and then everybody goes underwater so um the question is if you think short term or long term, and I think most people are probably pro and most politicians tend to think short term. So we can protect it for a year or two or three or five. I think we may have talked before about um, San Francisco International Airport yeah. is now has this plan to build a, I think it's a $567 million wall, 10 miles long to protect the airport for maybe the next 50 or 60 years. And, and there's a place where it's such a valuable facility. Mm -hmm. They're not going to just walk away. But at some point, when the ocean goes over the top of the wall, well, how, how tall can you build those walls? Mm -hmm. And you can see there is going to be a point. You can't make them 100 feet high. Yeah. <laughs> and then what do you do? And, but most coastal cities around the world that have big airports built them out over the water because that's the only place they could find land. But if you had to replace SFO, I guess you could move everything to Oakland, but they're same elevation above sea level. Yeah. How far would you have to go to find a piece of land that big, that's accessible? Mm -hmm. Could you find it in Marin County, uh, Contra Costa County? So that's another um, massive challenge. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Well, my favorite question to end with is, is there a particular part of the California coastline that is your favorite part to go to or that you, <laughs> or a, a particular geographic structure that you just find absolutely amazing? Oh, uh, well, I think the, the coast between Santa Cruz and Half Moon Bay, which is still almost all agriculture, yeah. you can sort of see these old coastal barns, almost no homes, um, artichokes, Brussels sprout, not my favorite, but that's what we grow. It just has the feeling like you could have been riding along there on a horse 200 years ago and it would have looked almost exactly the same. So it's sort of um, this idea that we have protected something. Most of that is in state land now that you can still see, wow, this is what California looked like. Um, and there's some parts of, of Humboldt County when you get up into the redwoods and so forth that are for me, pretty nostalgic because we used to spend a lot of summers there. Um, I grew up in Southern California and I can't say there's any place down there that is special to me any yeah. longer. I mean, you're dealing with, you know, 25 million people that all want to be on the coast at the same time. But even in Santa Cruz, we have a state park just north of town. You can bike to Wilder Ranch. It was an old farm and <clears throat> you can go out there, trails along the coast, mountain bike trails up on the hills. And you get down on the beach and there's nobody there and you're, you know, two miles from Santa Cruz and, you know, an hour from Santa Clara Valley and you can still find a place that's isolated. Big Sur Coast is another special place. So that was more than you asked for. <laughs> we have a lot of beautiful coastline yeah, out here. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining sure. me today. This has been incredible. And yeah, I will link a few of the the sites that you have mentioned and okay. potentially your book. And thank you so much for giving all of that information. Yeah, it's been wonderful talking to you. Good. Thanks very much for including me. Yeah, thank you. Many thanks to the Belinsky Foundation and the Belinsky Fellowship at Bodega Bay Marine Lab for providing the funding that made this series possible.